The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Lord, thank you for this day. We thank you for the uh, privilege we have of being called sons and daughters of the living God, that we have been given the grace of being adopted into your family. And not only that, but you have been so good to us, even beyond all of the blessings of justification of being adopted into your family. You have settled us into local churches where people know us and we can know them and we're in relationship with each other. And I just thank you for that. And I pray that as we study this morning, as we continue to unfold the Word of God on this very, very important topic of homosexuality, trying to understand it biblically, I pray that you give us grace um, so that we actually, our desire is that we might minister the gospel to people who are <clears throat> enslaved to sin and that we ourselves might be protected from, from temptations towards sin, that we would be able to stand firm in holiness and be faithful in the external journey of gospel advance. So be with us as we study in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is um, uh, basically kind of a crash course this morning on biblical teaching on homosexuality. So this is uh, some overlap from last week's uh, handout, but I, it's really a fresh handout. And we're going to go on into the book of Romans and just do a good overview. We only have one more week. And so next week, I'm probably going to write a new, uh, a new message. A lot of this is stuff that I taught a few years ago when we were dealing with gay marriage, the issue of, gay, of uh, the Supreme Court decision to legalize uh, homosexual marriage. Um, and so we just uh, went through that. And the, the Bible doesn't change. There's no, there's no new doctrines, no new teachings here. But the handout is basically what I did at that point. But uh, the question of transgenderism has really risen up and, and has become more and more of an issue. And uh, I think I'm probably going to address some of that next week. Uh, but let's go ahead and look if we can. And, and one of the things that we're going to find this morning as we study on homosexuality is there's a bigger issue. And the bigger issue is uh, how we approach the scripture as 21st century people. And so there's an apologetic issue, and that is that people use, let's say, the holiness code, the dietary regulations, things like that, against us, saying that we're being selective. We're going to find that. And what we want to do is be able to, to say, you know, it's not that simple. We do agree that there were dietary regulations and there was a holiness code that puts somewhat of a wall of separation around the biological descendants of Abraham, the Jews. And we do believe in the new covenant those things have been removed. And so it's simplistic for our debating partners, our non-Christian friends, to talk about the Old Testament in that way. We want to try to show them as best we can, if they want to get into it at that detailed level, that we have an answer. We don't want to get bowled over and, and say, you know, maybe we are being selective. Maybe we are just picking and choosing. Maybe we're not really dealing with the Scripture um, properly. So we just want to walk through this, and, and we've got to get through a lot of material today, so let's go as best we can. Uh, we're starting with the Old Testament teaching on homosexuality, and we just have some narrative passages uh, in Genesis and Judges that deal with homosexuality. Of course, the account of Sodom and Gomorrah, very well known, uh, where God sends two angels to go down and find out if the city is as wicked as the outcry against it is, and, and he will know. 
And so Abraham knew very well what was threatened against Sodom and Gomorrah, and that's where he interceded that God would not sweep away the righteous with the wicked. I think he was concerned about his nephew Lot. <clears throat> and he was praying and interceded. But the angels went down, and as you remember the account, uh, some wicked men of the city wanted to drag them out and force them into homosexual sex, you know, ra to, to rape them. And that was just evidence of the wickedness of the city. Now, in the book of Ezekiel, we find out that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was not just homosexuality, but they were overfed and indolent and luxurious and had no concern for the poor and needy. So it wasn't just homosexuality. There was just a whole array of sins going on, but it was a wicked city. And then you have a very sad and similar account in the book of Judges where you have a Levite and his concubine, and almost the exact same thing happens. Wicked men in the city pound on the door and want to know the man that has visited, and the man, just like Lot did, offers the, the daughters. And it's just almost like what's going on is that Israel has become no different than Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's what led me to believe, given that the Levite was active and involved in this, that one of the themes of the book of Judges is look what happens when those entrusted with the word of God do not faithfully teach the people. If they are not faithfully taught, it's, the, it's up to the priests in the Old Covenant, the Levites, to teach the law of God to the people, to teach the word of God. And if they don't do that, if they just end up like a, they're just going to end up like a pagan people. They end up no different than Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's a good lesson for all of us. It is the sanctifying work of the word sets us apart as holy from the wicked of the world. That's, it's the teaching ministry of the world. So that's what we're trying to do this morning. So those are two narrative accounts, uh, but in both cases, homosexuality depicted very negatively. And that, that wouldn't, wouldn't be uh, conclusive um, because there may be just wicked people, etc. You have to teach your, get your teaching from the, uh, from the clear assertions in the Word of God uh, concerning homosexuality. So we have two key passages in that. Uh, Leviticus 18 and then Leviticus 20. Uh, would someone read Leviticus 18, 22 and 23 for us? All right, so this is in the sexual holiness code. They're going through various sexual laws and this is right in the middle of it, okay? I included the bestiality section because it's the same kind of teaching. It's like that is detestable, that is wicked, it's perverse. And so the idea is these things are just put side by side. It's a clear prohibition for Israel. Again, Leviticus 20, verse 13. Uh, could someone read that? Yeah, Rick, go ahead, please. Yeah, I think the Bible uh, presents, in, when it comes to holiness, presents gradations of evil. Um, like when Jesus said, he who handed me over to you is guilty of the greater sin. He was, uh, I think, talking about Ananias and Sapphira to, uh, uh, not Ananias, sorry, Annas and Caiaphas. Sorry, my bad. Annas and Caiaphas. He was talking to Pontius Pilate. And um, he thinks that Pilate's going to be guilty of sin and condemning him, but he thinks the Jews are guilty of greater sin. So my point there, just in that assertion, is there's sin and then there's greater sin. So the gradations of sin uh, is clearly taught in the Bible. Some sins are worse than others. And I think what we're going to find with homosexuality, the reason the language of perversion is used, is that you have to really do things to your understanding of nature, of biology, of your inner conscience, all of that. You have to do those kinds of things to get to that level of sin. So we're going to get to this very soon, uh, Rick, in Romans 1. But the question is, is homosexuality the same or different than other sins? Yeah. I'll, I'll just lay my cards on the table. The way that homosexuality is the same as every other sin is that it can condemn you to hell and that it's forgiven by the same blood of the Savior. The same gospel covers it. 
That's the way it's the same. The way it's different is that it's mentioned so prominently in Romans chapter 1 as a clear, if we can use Rick's point that he's making, a perversion of nature. It's, a, it's contrary to nature, and we're going to make that case. There's, there's a clear teaching um, concerning the biology that God set up that you have to harden your heart against. So in that way, it's different. I would say the, the primary way for me, this isn't going to be compelling for a non-Christian, but the primary way homosexuality is different than other sins is its prominent mention in Romans chapter 1. The fact that it's mentioned there is going to be significant. We'll see that. Paul brings it up as an evidence of the hardness of human heart. Um, also, I would say this. There's, like, talk about what Rick's bringing up, the idea of gradations of evil, greater sin, lesser sin, greater sin, that that's actually a biblical concept. Um, Isaiah says uh, concerning the Jews, they parade their sin like Sodom. Woe to them, they do not hide it. That's a very interesting verse. The logic of the verse, it would be better for them to hide it. Now, he's not saying as the prophet of God, it would be better for them to hide it. It doesn't matter if they do it or don't. He's not saying that. But he's saying it's better to hide perversion than to be openly proud of it and parade it. It's, it's better. It's like a, it's one more step away from God if you don't feel any shame in which you want to be celebrated. You want to be, you know, you take something that God says is evil and you make it good and you're trying to get it to be celebrated. That's even worse. We, you should, as a sinner, have a desire to be covered and to hide and, and there should be that shame. When you lose even that, I think it shows a, an incredible hardness of heart. So that's what I get out of Isaiah's statement. They parade their son like Sodom. Woe to them, they do not hide it. All right, um, somebody read Leviticus 20, 13 for us. All right, so here you have, I think, clearly a mixture of a timeless principle and then a time-bound code, all right? No evangelical, well, I would hope, no evangelical Christians in 21st century America would advocate the death penalty for homosexuality. Uh, it was a different time in the theocracy. Uh, following other gods, going after other gods and goddesses was worthy of the death penalty. Uh, we Americans believe in freedom of religion. We are not believing in punishing people for following false religions by any kind of, you know, that's just a Baptist pr principle. It's something that we, you know, that we believe in the separation of church and state. Uh, however, there is a timeless teaching, I think, here of uh, how wicked it is for a man to lie with a man as one lies with a woman. All right, so this is in the Holiness Code of Israel. This is what was supposed to set the Jews apart from the pagan nations. And Leviticus 18.22 occurs in a larger context of forbidden sexual relations that outlaws incest, uh, adultery, uh, child sacrifice, and bestiality. Um, the degree of revulsion associated with the homosexual act is suggested by the Hebrew word translated abomination or an abhorrent thing, something detestable, loathsome, utterly repugnant, disgusting, uh, indicating a conspicuous violation of boundaries set up uh, by God. And the penalty is extreme, as with many penalties in the Old Testament, and that is death. The laws are unqualified, they're absolute, they neither penalize only oppressive, uh, oppressive forms of homosexuality or excuse either party to the act. So it's not like some gradation, there's certain types, if there's genuine love involved or any of that. No, it's just straight out considered to be a perversion and evil. 
All right, so now we have to look at the topic I brought up at the beginning, which is the modern relevance of the Mosaic Law. All right, aren't Christians being inconsistent when they quote part of Leviticus as though it were still binding, but they leave out other parts? So back a few years ago when I was teaching this, this was relatively new, uh, this guy Ben Cohen, uh, clearly a Jewish name, uh, the, uh, the word Cohen is Greek for, uh, sorry, he Hebrew for priest, so, um, but it's amazing. I was raised with a lot of Jewish people. Most of the Jewish people I was raised with are atheistic. Um, they don't have any commitment to any religion at all. Um, at any rate, he was talking about Chris Broussard, and there was a uh, NBA player that came out openly as gay, and he uh, was talking about um, uh, sexual uh, immorality. Chris Broussard, he still works for ESPN. Um, it must be challenging to be surrounded by such political correctness all the time and stand for Christ. But he took a beating, uh, and he was actually pretty balanced in what he said. He said, you know, the Bible's against fornication. The Bible's against adultery. The Bible's against homosexuality. He was actually pretty, he was balanced in what he said. He, he actually made more sense and sounded better than a lot of folks that speak up for Christ in the public uh, realm. But this is what this guy wrote. ESPN, ESPN's Chris Broussard is, a, is homophobic and a bigot, whether he likes it or not. That's the title of the article. Quote, it is almost certain Broussard ignores 90% of the gibberish in Leviticus, and for good reason. It has absolutely nothing to do with the way we live our lives now. We eat juicy steaks. Uh, speaking of eating meat with blood in it. People who cheat on their spouses aren't condemned to die. As a society, most of us have progressed as we learn more about ourselves and our natural world. We now know that homosexuality is not unnatural. Huh, circle that with a pen. Um, it has existed in every human society on the planet throughout history and within other species. It does not harm anyone, and we know it doesn't encourage others to become gay. So we move on. Unless, that is, you harbor your own prejudices that leads you to, listen to this, pick and choose biblical laws according to your particular taste. So that's the very thing I'm trying to address here, that we are being selective, we're picking and choosing, etc. And that is exactly what Broussard is doing. Although he may not understand it, he is a homophobe and a bigot. Why? Because he has been highly selective in his biblical beliefs. Should he take to the airwaves and denounce ribeye steaks, he'd have a leg to stand on. But he hasn't, and we can only conclude that he opposes Jason Collins' lifestyle because deep down it is something his own masculinity is incapable of coming to terms with. So that's the essence of the homophobia charge, that basically men are afraid of becoming gay themselves, and so they put up walls of defense. That's, that's the psychoanalysis that our people are doing. But there's a deeper issue here, and that is the holiness code and the Old Testament and how we Christians deal with it. Now, if you go to a good teaching church, a good Bible teaching church, and you stay there any length of time, you're going to be able to answer these questions. The harmony between the Old Testament and the New Testament is very much the issue for us in dealing with the Bible as a whole. We know very well that there are many commands in the Bible that are not binding on Christians today. We understand a basic level of exegesis and hermeneutics that comes with reading the Bible for any length of time. Let me just take a very easy example. When Paul told Timothy to bring the cloak that he left with Carpus at Troas and get there before winter, are you guys doing that? Are you obeying the word of God? Well, you know right away that you don't need to go find Paul's cloak. It's going to be a long search. And when you pick up a garment, you're not really going to be sure whether it's Paul's or not. There probably is a museum somewhere in Germany or in Poland somewhere that has Paul's cloak. But don't you believe it? I have no way of knowing whether that's Paul's cloak or not. And I don't think they're going to let you take it out of the museum anyway. 
The fact is you know when you're reading that to just set it aside. It was a temporal command and it's not binding on us today. It's a little harder when it comes to Old Testament uh, issues of the Holiness Code, etc. For us, we believe that the Old Testament law comes in three uh, parts. Uh, one of them is a timeless moral code that Jesus summarized with the two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. Jesus said all the law and the prophets hang on, on these. So wherever the Old Testament vocalizes that type of thing, love God, love neighbor, we understand that timeless. It's binding forever. And I say it will be going on into eternity. I think this is exactly what Paul has in mind when he says faith, hope, and love remain. But the greatest of these is love. And love is the only one of the three that's going to be eternal. You will not need hope in heaven. You will not need faith in heaven, but you will be filled with love in heaven. And you will be filled with love vertically toward God. You will love him perfectly. And you will be filled with love horizontally toward other people. You will love them. That's forever. So wherever you can find love God, love neighbor in the Old Testament, we understand that that's still binding. So that would include you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, things like that. And so uh, Paul says in, in Romans, I think 13, he says all the prohibitions that commands, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, they're summed up in one law, love your neighbors yourself. So we understand wherever you can find that, that's binding. There's another set of, of laws that we just seem to understand are not binding for us anymore and just has to do with the way that Israel was run as a nation. Political laws having to do with the uh, kingship and other things as a citizen of the theocracy that was Israel. We understand that those laws, anything tied to the national life of Israel is fulfilled. Then you've got the priestly code. You've got the things tied to the animal sacrificial system that the book of Hebrews tells us very plainly are obsolete. Jesus used the word fulfilled. You can have both words, fulfilled and obsolete. Fulfilled, therefore obsolete. I mean, you can cling to those words. And there are many of those types of commandments. Again, you can look at Ephesians 2, which talks about a barrier, dividing wall of hostility that was erected by the holiness code that set the Jews apart as not pagan, set the Jews apart from the Canaanites and Hivites and Perizzites and Jebusites and all of those pagan people set walls around them until the Messiah came, until Christ was born, and then they were not needed anymore. So they set the Jews apart as a separate people so that when Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, salvation is of the Jews, it meant something. She knew exactly what that meant. She said, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. She knew there was a difference. And what made the difference was circumcision, the dietary regulations, the, the priestly code, all of those sorts of things that set the people apart as holy and unique. Now, the principle of the people of God being set apart to God as holy is still there, but it's just not lived out in the same way. Does that make sense? So those are the three divisions of the laws. It's good to keep that in mind. Non-Christians who try to come and do this don't know what they're talking about. They haven't read the book of Hebrews. They haven't understood when Jesus said fulfilled. They don't understand obsolete in Hebrews 8. And that doesn't mean we should be arrogant. It just means you've been graced with better teaching and you understand how to harmonize this whole thing. It was pointed toward the coming of the, of the Christ and the Messiah. Once he came, uh, the animal sacrificial system was fulfilled and the, the set wall of separation was fulfilled. And we don't have to follow those. And we also know when it comes to ribeye steaks and shellfish and other things like that, um, we can eat anything that we want when it comes to religion, when it comes to a relationship with God. There may be health reasons not to eat, you know, marble beef. Uh, you can talk to your dietitian about that. 
but that you're not going to be in any disadvantaged relationship with God. All foods are clean. Does that make sense? So that's just the teaching. Jesus declared all foods clean. That, that time is done. And so for this individual to say picking and choosing, honestly, we didn't do the picking and choosing. God did by bringing up laws for a time and then fulfilling it. So I'm not on my handout here, but I'm just summarizing. Well, any questions about that? This is going to be a very important topic. You will, yeah, I think so. Um, I'd also say the death penalty has been transmuted. I think it's just the same as Adam in the garden. Adam didn't die that day. So in evangelism, I use the language of death penalty. All sin deserves death. But God has commuted our sentence to give us time to repent. But it's going to come. And the death is not just physical, but it's hell. So we're still under the death penalty, but God in his grace has commuted our, our sentence to give us time to repent. That's the, way I, the language I would use. Well, Rick, I, that, is, that is the essence of the whole homophobia thing. They mean to put us back on our heels and say, so, well, I'm not afraid. You know, it's like when you start doing it's like, I'm really not. I'm not afraid. I'm not lying. Really. It's like you're, you're back on your heels and it's really pretty shrewd. It's similar to linking homosexuality with civil rights. There's an intelligence behind this. And what you have to say is, look, I'm not afraid of homosexuality any more than I'm afraid of adultery, any other sin. I just the, the, the Bible calls it sin. I don't have a deep seated fear of it. Honestly, I probably don't fear it as much as I should. But as I said last week, and I've mentioned this before, we need to fear God on behalf of those who don't. Gay people should be afraid of homosexuality. That's what, just like adulterers should be afraid of adultery. We should be afraid of what God will do. So <clears throat> here's the thing. I believe that God enacts the death penalty every day. Every single day, God kills sinners, in the, even while they go about their business. He kills them, dead. He just doesn't send an angel and say, well, by the way, hear ye, hear ye. The reason this person died of a heart attack or in a car accident or whatever is because of their sin. He doesn't say that. But the Bible does say that God reveals or expresses his wrath every day. And so <clears throat> I think the death penalty is still in, in act, or, but, in, but it's just not enforced by human governments, nor should it be. I'm going to say that. It shouldn't be. I'm not advocating that it should be. Go yeah, ahead. I mean, the hard thing for us, and I'm going to, uh, God willing, in a few minutes, preach a whole sermon on evangelism. And as we're sharing our faith, it really is hard to know what to say. You know, I'm just giving you tools in the toolbox or weapons in the arsenal. I mean, we're trying to d destroy ideas and concepts and arguments, not people. But the idea that we're being inconsistent with the Word of God is ignorant. I'm not trying to be insulting. They just don't know what they're talking about. We spend a lot of time trying to understand the Old Testament as it got the human race ready for Christ. It's, it's a lot of what we do. For them, I've likened it before to some, some soldier person parachuting into a, uh, uh, an Asian city and landing there and uh, just standing and observing for 30 minutes all the things they do, the merchants, the, the, the police, whatever, and just say, this is all stupid. It's like, well, what in the world? You've been here for half an hour and you're rendering a final judgment on the way this culture does everything? You don't know what you're talking about. You're parachuting into the midst of an ancient book that people have been studying for millennia and you're sweeping it away with the charge, the light charge of inconsistency. It's just not that simple. But I don't know that, you, I don't even think you should say all that. I think what you need to do is just try your best to refute the argument, say, you know, say with kindness, say, I am very interested in talking to you about the way the Old Testament and New Testament can be harmonized, if that's what you're interested in. If you want to talk about that, I want to. My concern is that homosexuality is clearly portrayed as a soul-killing sin. We believe that it's a soul-killing sin, that it puts the people who do it in danger of hell. 
our desire is to rescue people. Our sins put us in danger of hell. All sins put people in danger of hell. That's what I want to talk to you about. And then you, you keep going. If they really want to roll up their sleeves and do a, a study on Leviticus and, and all that and the book of Hebrews, book of Hebrews is the place to do it. Book of Hebrews answers all. It just tells us how these things were fulfilled in Jesus. And it's a beautiful, beautiful, indispensable book. But I'm not, I'm not sure they really want that. They're just, it's like a snarky comment. They're just trying to disprove it, etc. So, all right, let's go into Romans. We really have to do Romans. This is vital. The most important passage in homosexuality, in my opinion, is Romans 1, 24 to 27. I mean, this is absolutely vital. And what we have to understand is not all books of the Bible are created equal. They're all equally true, but they're not all equally important. And they're all equally true, but they're not all equally glorious. Like we said about people in heaven, saints will not all be equally glorious in heaven. I don't think every book of the Bible is equally radiantly glorious. Some books just shine brighter and bigger than others. I think it's just so obvious that Isaiah shines brighter and bigger than Obadiah. It just should be obvious to you. First, it's just incredibly much longer. And the themes of Isaiah are so glorious. There is no book in the Old Testament that so clearly portrays the glories of the coming Christ in his kingdom as the book of Isaiah. It's just a glorious book. And I think Romans it op- occupies a similar upper echelon place in the word of God. I think the, the goal, the, the, the task that God assigned to the book of Romans is to unfold the gospel in detail. And that's what Romans is about. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith or for faith. As it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Then the very next thing he says in 1.18 is the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So what he does is he says that basically the theme of Romans is the gospel and its power to save sinners. And then he immediately goes in for the next basically three chapters on why we need a savior. Why do we need a savior? And that's what he's looking into. Um, Robert Gagnon said, with good reason, Romans 1, 24 to 27 is commonly seen as the central text for the issue of homosexual conduct on which Christians must base their moral doctrine. This is true for several reasons. It is the most substantial and explicit discussion of the issue in the Bible. It is located in the New Testament. It makes an explicit statement not only about same-sex intercourse among men, but also about lesbianism. And it occurs within a substantial corpus of material from a single writer, which allows the interpreter to properly contextualize the writer's stance on homosexuality. Romans 1, 24 to 27 is also the most difficult text for proponents of homosexual behavior to overturn. It basically is like game, set, and match. It's, it's done. When you read that, I think many, many people who try to harmonize Christianity with their homosexual lifestyle, many of them have waved the white flag here. And sadly, they don't give up homosexuality, they just give up being Christians. We, we've seen that happen even with church members here. All right, they, they read it, we walk through it, and they're like, yep, um, I can't be a Christian and gay, but I'm not going to stop being homosexual, and they give up. Uh, and that's, it's sad that they make that choice, but it also shows the power of the Word of God. So let's, uh, let's uh, look at it. All right, is homosexuality like any other sin? I've already answered this, but I'll say it again. Yes, it is in two significant ways. First, like any other sin, it has the power to condemn the soul to hell. Secondly, like any other sin, it is completely atoned for by faith in the blood of Christ. So the way that homosexuality is like any other sin is more important than the way it's not like any other sin. They're not equally vital. 
we need to understand that homosexual, practicing homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God. They're in danger of the fire of hell. That is absolutely vital for us as evangelists to know. Second of all, we need to know and commit to them the confidence that the gospel can save them from it, that there is forgiveness and transforming power in the gospel. That, those two points are more important than what I'm about to say, but what I'm about to say is important too. Homosexuality is not like any other sin in some uh, significant ways. Number one, unlike other, all other sins, it is afforded special treatment by God along with idolatry as a central example of depravity in Romans 1. So I'm making a hermeneutical argument here saying that Romans 1 is more significant as a chapter than many other chapters in the Bible. It's a very significant place in redemptive history. So there he is unfolding why we humans need a Savior, why the wrath of God is being revealed, why Jesus had to come. That's what he's doing in systematic ways. Secondly, unlike all of the sins, it is afforded special treatment by our culture to be excused and redefined as no longer sinful, as, but as something to be celebrated. So uh, Jonathan Parnell says this very well. Sexual immorality is no longer the tip of the spear for the progressive push. So that's like the sex, sexual revolution of the 60s. That's not where we're at anymore. We've moved past that. Adultery is still frowned upon by many. Accusations of greed will uh, still smear a candidate's uh, political campaign. Thievery is still not openly embraced. And there are no official initiatives for saying it's okay to go steal things that don't belong to you. There's no such uh, thing as a drunk agenda yet. Uh, most aren't proud to choose a beverage over stability, and there aren't any petitions that the government should abolish the driving restrictions of inebriated individuals. Reviling others uh, still isn't seen as the best way to win friends and influence people. Swindling, especially on a corporate level, usually gets someone thrown into jail. In fact, the infrastructure of the American economy depends upon, in some measure, our shared disdain for conniving scammers. So we could, we could add a list of things that our culture still severely frowns on. And actually, it's amazing how moralistic some of these folks can be. And we would agree with them about some of the sins they are very upset about, such as spouse abuse, child abuse, other things like that, sex trafficking. We would consider all of these things terrible evils and join them in condemning them, all right? But isn't it interesting that this sin has a whole like um, political activist group around it to get us not only to accept it, but to celebrate it. So it is afforded special treatment in our culture. There's a third way I think that homosexuality is different, and that is biology. There's, there's a clear frustration of the indications of what God wanted in biology that you don't get so much with other sins. So, and Paul will make that case. So let's go ahead and look at it. Understanding Romans 1, big picture, the flow of the chapter we've already given, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. I'm not going to quote it again, Romans 1, 16 and 17. God's wrath is revealed against all wickedness, uh, Romans 1, 18 through 20. It says, for the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress, suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities... His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. So basically, that's about God's testimony of his existence and his nature that he left within the hearts of human beings and within nature itself. 
so that people are without excuse for their atheism or their not belief in him. There will be nobody that will have a valid excuse on Judgment Day. Keep in mind, no one will be condemned to hell because they haven't heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sinners are condemned to hell because they violated the truth that they did know about God. And I don't believe that there's equal gradations of punishment. I think people are punished in proportion to the amount of light they receive from God. So that's why I've said the worst place to go to hell from is from a good Christian family. If your kids don't believe, they are in a terrible place. If you've been faithful to pour the gospel out and to live it in front of them and they still turn away, they will be in a much worse place than the pagan who never heard of Jesus and dies violating this level of knowledge of God. Does that make sense? All right, you're, you're guilty of greater sin because of your knowledge of the truth and still didn't do it. That's all I'm saying. All right, then Paul in Romans 1 goes on to the first of two dark exchanges. And he uses the word exchange for both of them, idolatry and homosexuality. There's an exchanging. Could someone read this? Just I'm getting tired of hearing my own voice. Romans 1, 21 to 23. All right, so that's the first dark exchange. Interestingly, I think the best definition of idolatry is in the next little section that I give. Look just with your eyes down to verse 25. Do you see that? They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. So that Romans 1.25, the best single verse definition of idolatry in the Bible. It's a willful exchange of the glory of God for a creature, for something created, anything at all that's created. And so that's what idolatry is. That's the first and great exchange. It is the most significant sin of the human race. And it's like a comprehensive sin. Frankly, homosexuality is really just a subset of idolatry, in my opinion, because the people are going after their, their lovers they're going, rather than God. They're, they're worshiping a cre- creature. All right? So I think basically you could subsume all of sin to some degree under the heading of idolatry. You know, because we're putting ultimate value on a creature, on a created thing. All right. So the idea of exchange is this is what you had, but you gave it up. God gave you this and you traded it. You exchange it. All right. So the second uh, dark exchange is homosexuality. <clears throat> I would like someone to read this for us as well. Romans 1, 24 to 27. All right, obviously a very important section there. Um, There is a willful exchange being made on the issue of sexuality. Um, First of all, look at the language that that is used. God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity. This idea of God giving sinners over, I've said many times before, is the worst thing that God can do to anybody in this world. There is nothing worse that God can do to a sinner in this world than to give him or her over to their sin. What it means is that God is not going to exert any gracious efforts toward them to save them. Now, God doing this in any decisive way with an individual, we can never know. We always have hopes that God can save someone. But I do believe that there are people walking around that God has decisively and permanently given them over in their sin and they will never be converted. God will not extend saving grace to them. He doesn't owe it to anybody. But I'm just reading the language. God gave them over. And so the idea of God, that's, by the way, the very thing he will never do with the child of God. He's never going to give you over. He's going to fight your sin every day of your life, the rest of your life. And you just don't realize how, how great that is, how gracious of God that is. The fact that you get disciplined for sins, that you get sick 
or bad things happen to you, or God fight, 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 fights your sins, and he makes you miserable in it. That's just incredibly gracious of God. But he, you know, people that are happy and productive and, and fruitful and all that in this lifestyle, that's a tragic thing. You know, and, and I've said to uh, one grieving Christian parent, as their son got more and more involved in this lifestyle, more and more openly defiant, etc., we understand that that person can still be saved, but we imagine it's going to be a very, very hard journey. That for God to rescue them, they're going to have to go through some really wretched, miserable experiences in order to be stripped away from their um, homosexual desires. So God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity. He didn't fight them anymore. Uh, he didn't strive with them. And the result is, it says, the degrading of their bodies with one another. So they've taken their bodies and degraded them. They're, they're hurting their own bodies. They're assaulting their bodies with it. That's the idea. And uh, it says, as we said, this is the idolatry um, definition. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve created things rather than the creator who's ever praised. So you, you can see the sequencing, the lie first, then the pattern. So there's a thought process and then a lifestyle that follows it. There's a darkening of the mind and then a lifestyle that follows it. And we know that Satan's behind all that. He's a liar. He's a liar murderer. So he, he murders by lying. And so he lies to people, they believe the lie, and then they end up under, under the death penalty. Verse 26, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Again, the idea of, you know, he's giving them over to it, the shameful lust, uh, the idea of uh, lust that's degraded. This, I think, Jay, you've talked many times about same-sex attraction. That would be a shameful lust. Uh, that would be the idea. There's nothing good about it. It's, it's just, it's a shameful or a wicked lust. Honestly, any adulterous lust is also a shameful lust. But I think they're different because this is just one step further removed from God's um, ordained pattern. But they're both shameful. Even the women, then he turns to lesbian uh, situation, even their women exchange natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men uh, also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves a due penalty for their perversion. So you've got all this idea like unnatural, indecent perversion. That's how the NIV translates these words. These are very strong words. And as I said, it's a, just such a clear, very strong condemnation of homosexuality that any effort to kind of say that we're talking about like homosexuals that are not faithful to their partners, it's just incredible what people try to do with this but it just doesn't work. Uh, this is a clear condemnation of homosexuality. The final section of the chapter is the river of sin that flows from a depraved mind. Someone read this for us, Romans 1, 28 to 32. All right, so there's a, this is the most extensive catalog of sins in the Bible. There are other sin lists, but this is the longest. And so what we have to see is that idolatry and then homosexuality, they're just part of a river of specific patterns of sin that include such things as disobeying parents, slander, gossip, other things. All of these things are violations of God's moral law. Now look what it says. The beginning and the end of the section point to the deadly danger of sin, the wrath and death penalty from God. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. All right, verse 32, they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death. That's what we're dealing with here. And I've said before, I want to keep commending this concept. We need to fear God for those who don't. We need to be afraid for them. And so that's the real homophobia in my mind. It's like, I'm afraid for you. I'm not afraid of you. I'm not afraid of your sin pattern because I'm insecure in my masculinity. 
I'm afraid for you because of what the Word of God says is going to happen to you if you don't repent. So there is a right fear. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord or fear God. We persuade others. That's the thing. Yeah, Dave, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, maybe. Um, <clears throat> but I think it could relate to other things. Sometimes there are, there, we, don't, we can't draw the cause and effect connection. I mean, you could commit a sin in one area and, and then have a car accident and have to have your leg amputated. And we find out later that was God that did that. And so they received in, you know, the adulterer received in his body the penalty he deserved because he lost his leg. I, don't, I think for, for me as a Christian, I could totally accept that story. I just don't know that it ever happens in this specific case. Like, I don't want to go to every amputee after a car accident and say, you know, is there some sin in your life? Um, but I'm saying, yeah, I, I would think there is a connection between the, the unclean or unhealthy sexual practice. And then I think the same thing would be true of a, of a heterosexual visitor of prostitutes that ends up with a, a sexually transmitted disease. Wouldn't you think? I mean, this is a, you know, he's visited a prostitute. Now he's got an STD. I think we could see the same thing. I would, I would actually argue it's worse for a, homo, a practicing homosexual to not get sick. For them to maintain a healthy, prosperous, successful life right until they die of other, other causes or old age. Why would I say that? Why would I say that's actually worse? You're building up judgment. You have no sense that anything's wrong with it. You feel like you're successful. You're being totally vindicated every day in your life. I think that's the essence of God giving somebody over. When he, when it, you know, when, what does it say in Psalm 73? Their bodies are always healthy. They're always prosperous in everything they do. And in the psalmist, he went into the temple and understood their final end. Could be that they're going to be healthy and prosperous every day of their lives. That's like the worst thing that could happen to them, though. AIDS would not be the worst thing. If anybody converts to Christ because they got sick, then for them it was the avenue of grace in their lives. We just need to look at these things differently, you know. So the thing itself is terrible disease, and I think it's good, it's right for Christians, doctors, others to do everything they can to eradicate human suffering. So I, I think it's good for researchers to try to, to, to find a way to, to cure AIDS. I think that's good. Christians have been doing that for centuries, just in the line of Jesus' healing ministry. We would desire to see AIDS people healed physically. We'd want to pray for them. But we know there's a deeper issue, a far more significant thing. As we said in one uh, conference I spoke at uh, some years ago, we are concerned about all human suffering, but especially eternal suffering. We're concerned about all human suffering, but especially eternal suffering. Because eternal suffering is it's eternal. And so, uh, for me, I think that's the bigger issue here, is hell, ultimately. All right, Romans 2, 4 through 8 says that people who continue in this pattern of sin are storing up wrath against themselves for the day of God's wrath when His righteous judgment will be revealed. So this is a very, very uh, sad, uh, scary thing. So I write this, homosexuality, like all sin, is a spiritual poison that people are drinking to their eternal destruction. It is loving to warn them to stop. We just need to take the high ground. Don't be intimidated. Don't be told that you're a bigot and, and a hate monger. We hear the word hate all the time on this. First of all, you have to be loving. You have to be loving in your demeanor because it says in 1 Peter 3 that we talk about the hope that's in us with gentleness keeping a clear conscience and with respect. We show respect to human beings. So we're not God hates fags or any of that. I, that's just, I think that's a clear satanic attack on a good approach to homosexuality. That's not who we are. What we would want to say is we're want to say God hates sin. 
Now, if we want to say God hates sinners, it's like well, that's true of everybody. God, you know, Jacob, I love Esau, I hate it. I understand that. I'm not denying that. But what I'm saying is there's a loving demeanor. We are drawn by cords of human kindness. But there's a weeping and a brokenness in Romans 9 where Paul says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish. You'd, you'd say, Lord, give me a heart of sorrow over people who are on their way to hell. So that's what I would, I would have to say. So we want to take the high ground. Say it is not hateful to warn somebody to stop doing something that's going to lead to their eternal destruction. That's not hateful. Well, I don't believe it's going to lead to their eternal destruction. So I understand that, but I do. And you could actually say, if I really believe that and said nothing, then that would be hate on my part. Does that make sense? If I really believed that practicing homosexuals are going to spend eternity in hell and I did nothing, then that would be hateful. But that's what's happening right now. It's a smear campaign, and that's, that's what we have to face. It is unloving to be silent or tolerate, uh, to tolerate or celebrate it. All right, now the rest of the handout is just a careful exegesis and walking through these verses. Do you see that? We're running out of time. Um, but I just want to give you an overview of what's happening. The first part talks about the five stages of exchanges, and God gave them over. Stage one, God's invisible transcendence and majesty is clearly seen in creation. Stage two, humans knowingly and foolishly exchange the true God for idols. Stage three, God gives humans over to their desires, passions, and to an unfit mind. Keep that in mind. They really believe that this is okay. It's not like they, they, they're like, yeah, they have secret qualms. Some may, but there are just some people, they're utterly, absolutely convinced this is fine. And that's part of being given over to a depraved mind. Uh, the unfit mind, which aims at a self-degrading and self-destructive form of conduct. Stage four, many humans then dishonored themselves by exchanging natural intercourse for manifestly self-degrading and unnatural intercourse, all engaged in some form of improper evil conduct. So whether you're gay or not, whether you're homosexual or not, the end of the chapter, everybody should find themselves in there. If you can read the sin list in Romans 1, 28 through 31 and not find yourself there, you're not looking closely. Read it again. So that's the entire human race. We are all guilty based on that list. But he has zeroed in on idolatry and homosexuality. And then stage five, the self-degrading evil behavior to which God gives, over, gives humans over ultimately ends in death, both physical death and then uh, eternal death. All right. So it is amazing then that people celebrate their liberation from old taboos that came from God. They're actually displaying God's wrath against them in their freedoms. So the celebration, that's the essence of God giving, giving them over. Okay? So basically, as we look at that, uh, I like this statement from Paul Achtemeyer. I don't know how to pronounce that name. Anyway, so here we are. We rebellious peoples, glorying in the freedom we think to be grace, only to be told by Paul it is instead the fearful punishment of sin and a manifestation of God's wrath. The permissiveness we celebrate as a world come of age, we now find to be nothing more than the permission to fall deeper into sin. Divine discipline is the measure of grace, as divine permissiveness is the measure of wrath. So if God just lets you do it, that's wrath. Basically, as he said, you may drown in whatever swamp you choose. That's like free will. People can drown in this swamp or that swamp, but you can't not drown. That's the essence. Apart from Christ, you can't be saved. So there's a strong current pulling people away uh, from God and away from um, righteousness, and God just lets them go. And then they drift away very rapidly. All right, so I think we've made that, made that point. 
All right, I'm going to stop. We've got about three minutes left. Any questions or comments as we walk through this? We'll pick this up more next time. But, you know, I, I often get the image with uh, evangelism, and I'm going to talk about this in just a minute, about the guy who led me to Christ. You know, I picture, like, somebody drowning in a, in a, uh, a lake, you know, 50 feet from the shore, you know, or a lagoon. And you see that they're drowning, and you dive in, and you swim out, and you, you've, you're a strong swimmer, and you're skilled, and, and you do that. And they beat you up the entire way to the shore. And then they hug you and thank you. <laughs> that was me with Steve. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. Um, God never lets me forget it either way. You know, it's like, don't forget how mean you were to Steve and how much abuse you showed him until you were finally converted. And now you've been, for decades, thankful. He doesn't even know that. I talk about him a lot, the guy who led me to Christ. So um, it's a hard work, you know. People are going to be abusive. They're going to say mean things about us. They're going to question our motives. They're going to question our masculinity or our fears or our secret things or all that. They're going to do all that. We need to stick to the truth. The truth is that this is what God says about homosexuality. He's never going to change it. This is what it's going to look like on Judgment Day. There is a remedy. We get to proclaim that remedy in Christ. We get to say that Christ has the power to save sinners. We get to proclaim that. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.